0: Okay, welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast, where we're talking about innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm Ralph Montague, co-founder at AEC Hive. I'm the director at Architects as well. I'm joined by John Egan from BIM Launcher. John, you want to say hi to everybody?
1: Hi, everyone. It's John Egan, co-founder of AEC Hive and CEO of BIM Launcher. It's great to be here, and thanks for having me.
0: So we're really excited today. We're in British Columbia, Canada, and we're joined by Tanis Livniak, who's the CEO of Trillion Advisory Group. We're really excited to speak to you, Tanis. Maybe just to get started, if you could give everybody just a little bit of background about yourself and then a little bit about what Trillion does before we get into the discussion.
2: Absolutely. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here today. So my name, as you mentioned, is Tana Slavinyak. I'm the CEO of Trillium Advisory Group. I have a background in construction. I actually started my career uh, as a teenager working for our family business. Uh, so while my, f- my friends were out you know, having fun on the weekends and enjoying their evenings, I was learning how to mobilize and demobilize cranes, which I didn't always appreciate at the time. But uh, yeah, I, I got my start at a, at a relatively young age in, in the industry and worked my way into positions such as uh field coordination um did some uh some work in materials management so spent some time in the trades and ended up in a planning position actually and fell in love with making order out of chaos and there was no oper- uh, shortage of opportunity to do that back in those days and certainly uh that that hasn't changed a whole lot albeit we uh we are doing much uh, much better with digital tools than than we were back then so i i spent a few years in in planning positions as a, as a planner, uh, planning coordinator, planning manager, uh, spent some time in some corporate roles where I've worked for contractors, EPCs, owner organizations, uh, also worked for a technology company for a few years, uh, traveled the world, spending uh, quite a bit of my time working with teams deploying new processes and new technologies and Worked with executives, right to groups that uh, that were, you know, doing very large scale uh, implementations, to uh, working with teams that were just trying to to deploy something small and something new and take those incremental steps. And I've worked with teams all over the world doing that. Uh, really, in, really enjoyed that uh, experience. And now I'm the CEO of uh, Trillium Advisory Group. So we are a construction advisory firm with a focus on digitization. Uh, we have 12 employees right now. We operate across industry sectors, uh, but most of our work is in industrial energy and commercial construction. Uh, we have a global presence, but we're based in Canada. The uh, cold north right now, it's uh, it's the middle of winter and it's not, not the most amicable uh, climate, but all of our team members are, are based in Canada, but we do a lot of travel uh normally uh, but with covid right now we're we're spending a lot more time up in the the snow covered north so what we do we really focus on best practice deployment and solution deployment helping teams build better and that includes a variety of of uh things so sometimes we're working with bim sometimes it's uh lean construction deployment sometimes it's advanced work packaging uh, but we work with a lot of really uh, forward-looking clients, helping them innovate, helping them improve practices and procedures, and helping them deploy new tools that empower teams to build more effectively.
0: Excellent. So you have a lot in common with John. John also had his grew up in a construction business, and uh, and John's also spent his whole life trying to make order out of, out of chaos and can and connect a lot of solutions. Um I like that saying you said making order out of chaos. I think that's pr- probably quite a good way to to start the discussion. Would you say that a lot of people in construction actually enjoy the chaos? You know, it's it's part of the um, what makes the job exciting, you know, the, the sort of firefighting and the, it just seems that not, not everybody wants complete order.
2: You know, what one thing I've learned through my career is that construction professionals are great problem solvers and construction is is very dynamic and you know i i find this conversation interesting because no matter how much effort you put into front end planning and we do encourage uh teams to put more effort into front end planning than than they than they sometimes do uh, but no matter how much front end planning you do something will happen things go bump in the night that's that's just construction and as professionals, we need to be prepared for those things that, that may or could go wrong and have uh, alternative plans in place to be able to mitigate the risk of, of those occurrences. So I, I don't think construction teams necessarily enjoy the chaos, but I think they're prepared for the chaos. Some projects are a little more chaotic than others, I guess, but you know, the, the more effort you put into the, the front end planning process, the less chaos you'll see, which, which is a direct result of just better preparation. But the reality is that as you have so many moving parts and so many stakeholders and and people interacting, the dynamic itself will cause things to move offline and, you know, ultimately end up off the, the planned path. And as a result of that, I think construction teams are really good at problem solving and finding ways to get the project back on track, fix problems. Um, and identify really innovative solutions to push things forward and minimize the potential for chaos.
0: Yeah. Now, the reason I asked the question is because, you know, for, for 12 years now, we, we've been having the same sort of message. Let's try and order things. Let's try and streamline things. You know, why do we have why does it always have to be so difficult? And you know, there just doesn't seem to be a huge appetite for that sort of message or that sort of change. And, you know, often the people who rise in the ranks in construction, yeah are the people who have really good as you said problem solving abilities and everything, and of course, if you take the problems away, then you you'd almost say that would disrupt their job <laughs> or their position and um, I was just wondering if that was something that you've thought about or come come across but uh, it's interesting over the Christmas holidays, I was actually doing some research into innovation. And order and chaos. So it's interesting that you brought that up in your in your introduction, because what I was reading about was the where innovation occurs, and it's really on that boundary of between order and chaos. You know, so if, if things are too ordered, then it gets boring, and you know, if you're just doing the same thing over and over again, uh, whereas you know, as you stray towards chaos things get more interesting. And uh, chaos really represents the unknown, what you have to get into if you want to touch innovation. And so you don't want to spend too much time in chaos, but you do have to sort of step into the chaos to encounter innovation or to encounter the unknown, explore and experiment, etc. Would you say that chaos is sort of an intricate part of the innovation process?
2: I would definitely agree with that statement. Um, st- when when things are in a steady state, the potential for innovation is lessened because there's uh, there's less of a driver. It what what is occurring, the activities that are taking place, are become very predictable, and the outcome becomes more predictable when you're in a steady state. When you disrupt that steady state, and you have a, a certain element of chaos. It's it results in teams sitting back and reevaluating the situation chaos uh, while some people may enjoy it for, for I think most people it's uh, it's very unsettling because the outcome of chaos is unknown and uh, generally people people don't like unknowns right it's it creates an element of risk so to mitigate risk when you have that level of chaos. It it causes people to be creative uh, by nature, whether you're in construction or any industry. uh, The the goal of of mitigating that uh, that chaos that that is occurring is really to achieve a new steady state. And that I completely agree with that, Ralph, that that is where some of the best innovation occurs. Uh, You need that that state of disruption in order to see alternative methodologies and alternative solutions that may create a new steady state that was better than the previous steady state. And that sometimes that just really requires kicking walls down for, for lack of a better term. Sometimes even when you're in that steady state, creating a, a sort of disruption and, and kind of throwing that steady steady state off kilter can result in teams really coming together and finding innovative ways to improve performance outcomes. And uh, if we're, if we're just accepting the status quo, if we get to that, that level of performance and we just sit back and say, okay, great. You know, we've, we've eliminated the chaos. Things are, are going well. You could have a team that spends 30 years in that state, that same state, never innovative, never, never improving along the way.
0: So taking that argument a bit further, you could say that, like, too much order, then, uh, is obviously an inhibitor to innovation. So if you go too far into ordering things, and it you know, becomes over-prescriptive, and you know, too much bureaucracy, and it could hamper innovation. Uh, so, like, as someone who spent, you said you spent a significant part of your career, as you said, trying to sort of put some order on this chaos, and do you think you can go too far with, with order?
2: I I think you absolutely can go too far with order and when you look at, at a lot of the exciting startups out there that are just doing really new and innovative things they're they're often living in a state of you know some chaos and and that's by design those those teams are agile they move very quickly uh they test things they see if they work and if they don't they move on to something else and that creates you know a little bit more chaos and they innovate in that in that constant cycle and when uh i think when you go too far uh in in trying to order your environment and create um a substantial structure i think the potential for innovation is lessened because of the Really, the rigor around affecting change in order to to take those steps forward. now you've got substantial processes and procedures and uh, you know approval processes and and that's sometimes the challenge in larger organizations with you know quite a bit of structure around how they how they deploy new solutions or new processes it It takes more time to affect change. and so, as a result, the ability to disrupt and really create that chaos and move on to a new track. Uh, it's it's just a longer process. And when you look at some of the the technology startups and the the services groups, the smaller services groups in our space, they move very quickly. And I think they're they're achieving a necessary balance of order and chaos to innovate while still doing that in a structured way and making sure that they're achieving deliverables and helping uh, the industry as a whole move forward in a, in a way that improves performance as a collective.
0: And I think this is maybe where technology. It could play its part because, you know, some of the order that you need and the project controls, etc. a lot of that involves sort of very tedious and mundane checking and ticking boxes and, you know, all sorts of things, which, you know, humans don't like to do and, and then tend to do it badly. But, of course, a machine can just get through that stuff very quickly and, and consistently and not have tea breaks and not have holidays. And, <laughs> and uh, so... Uh, and it's often it's interesting to see some companies like unwilling really to replace these sort of outdated paper-based processes with technologies so so some of them say they don't trust the technologies Uh, others are just sort of being cheap if you like without valuing the time of the human being which has value as well you know and making them do these tedious things when a machine which is a fraction of the cost would you know, do it much quicker and much better and more consistently. In your consulting role where you're working with international companies, like, what were the obstacles to, to the adoption of technologies? You know, what, what were the, the things you came across m- most often?
2: I think the obstacles are really twofold. Number one, I, th- I think you hit the nail on the head, uh, lack of understanding. In in some cases, the level of awareness or knowledge around what the solution is really intended to do or accomplish is lacking, and sometimes you know people kind of get caught up in the hype around you know the the potential around AI or machine learning or you know analytics um, there's there's a whole host of of really great solutions out there and teams doing really exciting things. but when you sit down with the teams that are actually evaluating these solutions or looking at deploying them there's there's a bit of a gap between what they Uh, have seen in marketing material and and their business needs. And they spend a lot of time trying to marry the two. And I think sometimes that, that process is very confusing because there's kind of a lack of clarity around, you know, outside of the, the, marketing material that they've seen. How is this solution really going to help me accomplish my goals? How is it going to facilitate the processes that I need to to execute in order to to be effective or achieve a, a desired end state? Um, I, I think that um, that gap sometimes is, is quite large and it takes between the solution provider and, and the organization. It takes some time to navigate through what what are the real business needs and how is the solution going to help me accomplish those business needs. Mm -hmm. Secondly, I think in the industry, we we still have some work to do on getting past anecdotal evidence and really documenting the value that solutions are providing to teams that are deploying them. Um, Now, recognizing that Uh, Some of those organizations that deploy solutions don't really want those numbers broadcast industry wide. But even internally as an organization, if I'm deploying something new, I I don't want to just hear from my team that, hey, this this solution is great. We really like it. I want to know how it's great. And I'd, I'd like to be able to quantify that somehow, because that is going to help us build momentum for larger deployments, portfolio deployments, organization wide deployments uh in and, and really getting past just that anecdotal evidence that hey this works and i think as an industry uh we need to challenge ourselves to do a better job of that we you know we go to conferences we listen to to presentations all the time about you know hey we used the solution everybody loved it uh it was great here's some fancy screenshots but you've got a whole group of people sitting in the audience saying what was the real value was was it quantified in any way is was there a return on investment if so was was it what you expected if not how how could we improve that on future deployments when we actually dig in and start measuring performance I think at that point, we're going to see more engagement within organizations and industry-wide as as some of those metrics are shared. I think we're going to see more excitement around some of the newer tools that are actually proving a return on the investments that are being made.
0: So does that lead on to what you're doing now in Trillion? Is it uh, that sort of advisory role helping clients to understand? I assume you're doing a lot of education and trying to bring all the grey haired C suite people, you know, up to a level of understanding. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then without that, the benefit of all that sort of industry wide ROI measurement, you have to somehow convince them to how this is going to sort of affect the bottom line.
2: Absolutely. So, yeah. We do we do spend quite a bit of time having those conversations. And we really start out with trying to understand what is the team trying to achieve. Um, because we've you know, it, 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 I've I've worked with teams in the past that, you know, have called up and said, hey, we've bought six drones. Now we need to figure out what to do with these drones. Well, that, that was probably the wrong order of operations. We don't buy them first. We figure out what we need them for um, or, or what business business problem we're trying to address. And then we evaluate whether drones are even the right solution to that so i think as as an industry we we need to look at the order of operations in which we're trying to solve problems throwing technology at at problems is is not the right approach and i think a lot of teams are are learning that people process technology in that order and when we when we take that approach and with teams we work with uh, you know if you talk to other services organizations in the space they'll they'll uh, share a similar uh, story we need to focus on the teams within an organization are trying to achieve whether that's executives whether that's project managers or coordinators uh, on construction projects we need to understand what the goal is first and foremost what what are the drivers what what's the problem that's trying to be overcome what are the goals that the group is trying to achieve then we look at the processes that they have in place and how those processes are fulfilling the goals and where the deficiencies are and then we look at technology as a way to augment the processes in some cases we have to overhaul completely but in some cases we're we're bringing solutions in that are just supercharging what what the team is already doing really well so we spend a lot of time working with organizations first and foremost just to understand what it is they're trying to accomplish and once that's documented, and we understand the business needs, then looking at whether they need a, a process, a new process or a process update or technology to help them overcome those challenges becomes a much uh, more straightforward approach. And from a value standpoint, the team is investing in areas where there's going to be some kind of a quantifiable return because the business goals have already been defined at the outset of that implementation
0: and what you described there seems to make sense where there's a critical mass within a group, but of course, like we all know the the construction industry in general is is very fragmented, and you know even a typical project, you might end up with sixty different organizations participating at different times and possibly each of those have thought about their own technology deployments of some sort mm-hmm. but, but they don't connect and <laughs> is probably where you might come in John but one of the challenges and maybe in the industries you're working in there might be bigger groups that sort of spend more time together but in general on projects you, know, you might spend two years with a on a project and that's it you move on and you're on to the next project with a completely different group of people and a different set of technologies and you know so it, that fragmentation is definitely uh, part of the the problem of te- you know technology adoption in AEC and and connecting the way people work. Would you, would you agree with that?
2: I think that that's a very um a very spot on statement the The number of stakeholders on a project, depending on the size can be pretty substantial, and the ability to connect and collaborate, within the construction space is is really empowered by the use of solutions that connect people. And the ability to do that without a lot of front end project preparation becomes far more challenging down the line as people are trying to shoehorn solutions together halfway through the project because they recognize the need at that point. So I, I think you're absolutely right. That fragmentation is challenging and it, it's far more visible at scale, the larger the project and the more stakeholders involved, the, the more fragmentation you see. And, and I think some of the biggest opportunities in our space for solution providers is um, it, th- th- those opportunities are really centered around connecting people at the outset of the project. Mm. And that that's really twofold. Number one, connecting their data, and number two, connecting the conversations that are occurring around that information. And I think those um those two approaches need to be well defined at the outset of a project, regardless of the size, but teams really need to invest and engage at, at the at the outset to determine how that connectedness is going to occur. And when that happens, when you see teams really engage at the front end and do a lot of planning and preparation and solution deployment to support that, you see projects that are more successful. The, the data is centralized. Information is easier to access. People can connect and communicate with each other more effectively. When you look at teams that realize partway through the project that that's something that they need, they'll get there. But it's it's more of a challenge because it was not planned for at the beginning. And oftentimes the sheer number of solutions that have been deployed, trying to integrate them halfway through a project is just not a practical exercise. So it, it becomes a half measure uh, part way through. So I, I think your point is spot on. The fragmentation is certainly a challenge. And as an industry, I think we can do a, a better job at resolving that, but we have to incorporate that, that process much earlier in the project life cycle and really invest in connectedness and collaboration as early as possible.
0: John, do you have any thoughts on connectedness? And-
1: yes, um, I think it's... It's interesting, like I'm, I'm still mulling over the two points of connections that Tanis has just mentioned around connecting data and connecting messaging and the communications on, on the project team. Um, and I'm also mulling over the point around uh, integrations and integrating technology at different stages of the life cycle of the project, whether that be at the start, the middle or towards the end, and how feasible or infeasible that is. And It depends, really, whether the integration solutions specifically around the data, connecting the data, is currently existing, so whether it can be just accessed as a solution, um, or whether that um, integration solution actually needs to be developed custom for the project. They're they're kind of two different um, kettles of fish, if you like. So, for example, if you have to if you have to custom build an integration, you need to pay for the development and obviously the maintenance and management of that integration. And and to your point, Ralph, around project scope construction and creating technology fragmentation, um, I think, yeah, you're right there. Like. Uh, the, obviously that integration is, go, you know, it's, it's developed, configured for the project requirements and its use may be limited to, due to the project um, and not necessarily uh, carried, carried across to another project. And if it is eligible to be carried across the pro- carried across to another project, the construction company is probably not skilled in the sale or resale of whatever innovation that they've developed on the project, such as this integration. Um, and then, what a, one thing that you know that I found from talking to BIM launcher customers is, you know, specifically around the development of the custom integrations. And um, they're, they're typically more costly because uh, they're developed bespoke for the customer. Um they typically need them in a short amount of or a short time frame, and they are you know the these construction companies that they, they don't they don't seem willing to part with their cash um to actually develop the integrations without some very good um supporting evidence around the value that it can bring the project um and I think you know, also Tanis, uh, with your point earlier, um, around, you know, w- like the industry needing ways to kind of create a taxonomy around the value offering or, you know, something along those lines around the value offering for solutions, um, that have been deployed around projects and get, getting away, getting away from the very marketing led, um, the very marketing-focused uh, approach of, you know, software vendors to our industry along with the shiny images, et cetera. I mean, it would be an absolute, you know, if we had something where we could objectively um, identify the value that solutions brought to technology pro- or, sorry, the construction projects, I really think that that could be something that would really give, you know, the white haired executives the figures i mean the, the guys that make the decisions are are you know they're they're looking at tables of figures saying yes that that will pay no that will not pay um and one one part one feedback or one piece of feedback that I got from a customer recently was you know they wanted a five x ten x return on on these integrations so like in order to justify this 5x, 10x return, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do there? Do you bring in, like, really experienced people um, in which they can talk to the value that will be offered by a solution? Or, I mean, it's, it's just a huge amount of work to kind of, you know, to integrate um, uh, data and people on projects. It's not just the um you know let's okay, let's go and develop something and deploy it onto the project. There's the whole suite of uh decision making processes that go with that and uh, all the options that, that could possibly provide a solution. They're just some of my thoughts on the uh, on this topic.
0: Do you have any questions for tennis? Came out of that?
1: <laughs> um I mean, I've, I think it's, it's really interesting. I mean, to be in a position where you work with these companies, I'd really like to get an understanding of the kind of, you know, the profiles of the companies you work with and um, how they're currently making decisions around the integrations um, aspect of, you know, technology on their projects um, and how then, what is the decision process and kind of I'd like to understand from your perspective what the laggards are and I mean moving forward what you can what you think will be expecting um, in terms of a decision-making framework that your, the customers that Trillium deal with will actually be uh, using if you like.
2: Yeah that's a that's a really interesting question um, and it, the answer to that question really depends on the organization, because everyone is so unique. Part of it depends on the size of the project. Uh, you know, Looking at custom integrations and, and build outs for a, a project that's quite small is going to be executed in a matter of a few months. In those circumstances, the level of investment required uh, just just wouldn't achieve the value that's uh, that's necessarily needed uh, to to really you know, even look at that as a practical uh, option or opportunity. So in, in those circumstances, we see a lot less, a lot less customization, a lot less integration just by nature of the small project size. But at a portfolio level, that's really where that conversation becomes a lot more interesting because in some cases, a single project may be quite short in duration, but the portfolio, you know, spans a number of years. And so when you start looking at project after project, And connecting the the projects together within a a portfolio ecosystem in those circumstances. Now, all of a sudden, the the discussion around integration and bespoke development becomes more salient because the potential return across the portfolio lifecycle is much higher. So. John, I think you made a great point around you know looking at the substantial amount of work that goes into building out those integrations and and the custom development you know trying to make that business case on a small project is is probably going to be a, a very difficult exercise but organization wide or across a portfolio, uh, that conversation becomes uh, a lot more interesting, and you're you're going to see on the client side a lot more engagement as far as the decision making process that that that's really an interesting question because. One of the points of feedback that we're hearing from, uh, from clients and specifically the smaller clients is we're just getting bombarded with so many options. There's so many solutions out there. Everybody tells us their solution is the best. It's going to create, you know, mountains of value for us. And we just don't, we don't know how to navigate all of the noise and really dig into what, what it is that's going to help us be more successful. And so that's that's really one of the challenges that clients are are facing in the industry right now. We're seeing a lot of new uh, solutions providers, lots of great new tech. But in turn, that's creating another challenge for clients because there's so many options out there that just navigating and trying to figure out what makes the most sense for them is now more difficult. And so I I mentioned earlier that that's um, that investment in. The business case from a, from a technology standpoint becomes that much more important as a solution provider. And this is just kind of a, you know, Tanis' piece of advice to uh, technology companies out there. The better you can make your, your business case, marketing hype aside, fancy pictures aside, great demos. There's lots of t- companies out there that can do all of that, but the better you can make your business case and show quantifiable returns testimonials from organizations that have have used your solution in the past or even connecting prospective clients with existing clients and allowing them to to engage in dialogue around how the solution has helped them be more effective. um, That's really where you can make your mark, because that's what clients are looking for now. They they're past the uh, the interest in seeing you know, fancy decks and lots of demos because there's so many solution providers out there that are trying to get their decks and demos in front of those clients. What's going to help you stand apart as a solutions provider is being able to demonstrate that that investment is going to generate a return.
0: I just want to come back to the fragmentation thing because mm-hmm. everything you've just said now, it just seems, and it's been my experience that the solution providers are going for the big fish, you know, because it's it's easy to go to a big organization it has the budgets and to work through all these processes and everything you've just described there uh but of course 90% of the industry isn't a big fish it's lots of little fish <laughs> swimming around <laughs> swimming around in a pond and it, it just seems that you know, that's that's end of the the industry and it and ultimately all those people that it is the the majority of the industry that end up working for the big fish but yeah you know, they're just excluded from the whole process like what would be a way for solution providers to, to reach the majority of the market?
2: That's a great question. From a, if, if we look at this purely from a sales standpoint or a business development standpoint, um, one of the interesting conversations that I often uh, hear within, you know, sales and marketing networks is who, who's our target audience. And oftentimes those big organizations are top of the list, right? Because, uh, for an organization to to ink a contract with a larger organization means that's going to be a very large deployment from a technology standpoint. And hey, that's great. But as you mentioned, Ralph, there is large amount of small to medium sized organizations out there that have similar needs and solutions provide uh, just as much value for them as they do for larger organizations. I, I live on the west coast of, of Canada, um, quite enjoy fishing. That's uh, it's one of the great things about about where I live. The, the fishing out here is fantastic. When when you go fishing, you, you some people will go out and they'll target just, you know, very, very large fish. You know, mm-hmm. king salmon, there's lots of uh, charter boats that will take you out and, and help you, you land a, a, a great size fish. You can spend three days out on the water and catch nothing. And to me, that doesn't make for a very interesting experience. It's great to, uh, great to catch a big fish, but it's, it's great to fish in general. And, you know, the, the analogy is very much the same when you're looking at the construction industry. If you really want to get out there and make a difference and, and have a lot of fun while you're doing it, you need to engage with organizations of all sizes. If all you're doing is from a sales or marketing standpoint is going after big companies, You'll, you'll absolutely make connections with those groups and, and, you know, you'll be able to engage in deployments and create very large amounts of value if you have a good solution. But there's a whole market of small to medium sized companies out there that need the same tools. They have very similar pain points. They're interested in those solutions. Uh, and, and in some cases, and I've heard this feedback is they feel a little bit ignored. You know, in some cases, the smaller companies, there's, there's very few solution providers reaching out to them because they're spending their time going after the very large organization. So mm-hmm. I, I think that that's a great point as far as the not just the fragmentation in the market, but the different stakeholders that that are in play and, and really creating value in the construction industry. They all have needs when it comes to process improvement and technology can help them achieve their goals. Different solutions are going to create different uh, different types of value for organizations, depending on what they have in place already and, and what their desired end state is. And I think um, technology providers would be well positioned to start having those conversations with some of the smaller to mid-sized companies, because as they grow, those companies will become large companies, and you as a solution provider will grow with them. And that's a great relationship to have.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. All right. I want to change tack a little bit because you have a lot of experience in planning, and uh, so I want to talk about planning and sequencing and time, because you know most pro- people. Particularly when they talk about BIM and and building, you know, they think of a static thing, like a building is a static thing and it, you know nothing changes once it's built. But even in in the process, there hasn't been a lot of. I mean, obviously you have 4D planning and that, but it, it's it's you know, it's not used very often. And so tell us a little bit about planning and time and sequencing, because you seem to have a lot of background in the, in, in that area. And like my view would be that people don't plan enough and they don't plan early enough. <laughs> i'd like to hear your
2: <laughs> i i think that's uh i think that's an accurate statement. Planning is often not invested enough in early in the project, and I think if you look at the organization in in the manner you described earlier ralph as a as a set of um, unique organizations coming together to Know, really do something great, execute a, a project and, and everybody's intention and their goal at the outset is really to do that successfully. Uh, what often happens along the way is we see that fragmentation that you referenced earlier and people kind of uh, begin to operate in their own ecosystem and they plan their work. And, you know, planning is is something that is an industry we've always done. But the connectedness of that planning is often what's at issue and when you start out at the beginning of the project and you have just a few stakeholders, you can do some planning, some preparation and, and generally things, uh, things proceed quite well. And then as you start to bring more stakeholders into the ecosystem, as, as the connectedness of that planning and the integration of that planning hasn't happened at, at the front end of the project, you start to see that fracture occur and things become um, out of sequence. And as that starts to happen, pulling things back into alignment at that stage becomes a very, very difficult exercise. And I'll use the handoff between engineering to procurement to construction as a great example, and then into completions and commissioning. Um, when you look at at the early stages of a project, you look at, you know, engineering um, design the way we design is not the way we build. And when you have concurrent activities going on, when you have engineering still progressing as construction is going into the field and starting to build, if those two groups are not aligned in their execution philosophy, what happens is engineering is is doing a great job producing deliverables and designing a facility that looks amazing and meets all of the, the client requirements. But the sequence in which those deliverables are produced from a design standpoint, and then therefore procured and delivered to site, is not in an order that supports effective construction execution. So what you often see is um, out of sequence work in the field as a result of that lack of alignment. And you know, oftentimes we we kind of point the and I say we as an industry uh, kind of point the finger at construction and say, look, productivity isn't very good. What's going on? But when you look at the root cause of that issue. Sometimes, many times, it's a result of out-of-sequence deliverables that were planned very early in the project, and there was not um, enough investment in defining what the, the field execution philosophy is and really driving that into making sure that the alignment of deliverables at the front end supports that. And when you look at advanced work packaging as a best practice, that is really the problem that it is it is resolving. As a best practice deployment, advanced work packaging aligns the stakeholders at the outset of the project to define the path of construction, and I'll go so far as to say the path of commissioning and completions, to ensure that all of those deliverables throughout the project lifecycle are supporting that execution philosophy. So it rids the project of that fragmentation that is so commonly noticed and really gets people moving in the same direction. So I'll, I'll create, uh, share an analogy of a three-legged race. We've all done those before, especially as children. Um, you tie a few people together at the ankles and tell them to run. And if everybody runs in a different direction, we don't get very far and everybody has a good laugh about it. But we often see that happen on construction projects, which is not so funny um, at the outset. You can you can, you know, tie people together at the ankles by analogy, but really um, create a a group of stakeholders, even if they're different organizations, but align everybody on a common path. And when you do that using advanced work packaging or other best practices that are out there, you're going to achieve far more success. And you'll see that alignment transcend those project stages all the way through to commissioning and completions where everybody understands the direction is working towards a common goal and at the end of the project, achieves a shared success.
0: And is advanced work packaging sort of integrated into the design process as well? So does it include design, or does it only begin once the project goes into construction?
2: It is, yeah. It's absolutely included in the design process. So it's it's interesting. When you look at work face planning, which was kind of the first iteration of advanced work packaging back in the early 2000s, it was really construction-focused. And, you know, the, really centered around the creation of work packages and the removal of constraints to make sure that construction crews could be more effective, more productive in their work and, and do work in a safer environment. And, you know, the, really the result of that effort, it, it was good. We saw some improvements, but um, certainly not the level of project performance improvement that that was intended because it those those early iterations of the best practice really didn't focus on the design deliverables. It was very construction focused. So advanced work packaging is a best practice and endorsed by the construction industry institute. Um, CII, it's, uh, it focuses on the entire project life cycle from concept to completion. And so as a result, that alignment is achieved right through the project life cycle and the success rate is much higher when teams implement it effectively.
0: I suppose. Whenever you introduce something new, like let's say you had a team that never heard of advanced, advanced work packaging and, you know, you said, okay, now we're going to implement this new thing. Yeah. You know, immediately in the, in people's minds, okay, this is like extra effort, extra work. Yeah. I'm busy. I haven't got enough time. <laughs> how's that, how's the technology help, you know, helping to reduce the kind of, additional impact on people. So is the technology actually making it easier for people or it's just as difficult or, or you're adding an additional burden through these processes?
2: That's a a very good question. And it's, it's something as an industry we hear quite frequently in the deployment of any new best practice. You know, we're, we're busy. This sounds like a lot of work um, to retool and, and start shifting the way we do work to, to align with this best practice now in some cases, you see client requirements to, to deploy best practices, advanced work packaging or, or BIM or, um, you know, lean. It, it, you know, really just depends on the client and, and the ecosystem. Uh, but in some cases, it's a, it's a client or contractual requirement to deploy a certain best practice. And in some cases, it's an organization that's, that's really forward looking and has identified the value that the, best practice will create for the organization or for the project team is and is is investing in it anyway, regardless of you know whether the client requires it or not. Um, But those those initial discussions often do center around what value is this going to create for me? And in the early days of advanced work packaging, that was always a bit of a difficult discussion. Right. Because we would go to conferences. I have I have a lengthy background in advanced work packaging. I've been in the space since 2007. And, you know, as a as a result of that, I've, I've really had the experience of seeing the early uh, stages of deployment of, of work face planning back when it was uh, known as that and then the evolution into advanced work packaging and where we are today and through the life cycle that discussion always really centered around what value is this going to create? What's what are the quantifiable benefits that I as an organization am going to achieve from deploying this best practice organization wider on this project. And it's a conversation that uh, we often struggled with in the past as an industry. Uh, Evidence was anecdotal, you know, a little bit subjective. People will get up and present case studies, but, there weren't a lot of metrics out there for people to really bite on and and say, okay, you know, this organization achieved this, therefore we can expect to achieve similar results. And the Construction Industry Institute did some good work in uh, defining the best practice and then uh, putting a research team together to really quantify the benefits. I think there's still a lot more work to be done in the space to to continue doing that. The best practice itself was was announced and and formalized really in 2015 by the Construction Industry Institute. And there's been a lot of great work centered around uh, really increasing awareness in the industry and and knowledge around how the best practice works and and the, uh, the benefits that Organizations can expect, but I think there's still a lot more work as an industry. Much like you see in in other areas, you know, BIM is a great example. There's always more we can do. There's more case studies we can put together. More investment in innovation and new improvements and enhancements to to practices. I think we're at a state with advanced work packaging where a lot of people are are aware of it. They they generally understand the uh, the benefits, but there's still a lot more to do in quantifying those benefits as an industry and really just pushing down walls, trying new things. And if we go back to the earlier conversation we had around creating a little bit of chaos, looking at ways to innovate and disrupting the space and continuing to do new things because, you know, 10 years from now, I would expect advanced work packaging would look very different than it does today. And that's a good thing. It, it's important that we keep pushing practices forward and trying new things. And, uh, you know, it really takes, People willing to become uncomfortable and, uh, you know, really try try things that are new. And sometimes that's project teams, sometimes that's organizations, sometimes it's individuals just sharing ideas. But as an industry, we need to keep pushing forward on advanced work packaging, on BIM, on other uh, other best practices that, that we're seeing create real value in this space.
0: And it would seem to me that there's potential benefits uh, if, if people were using advanced work packaging on individual projects but somehow you could have uh, sight of the data across a portfolio of projects in then in, in terms of engaging with the supply chain into material suppliers product suppliers etc you know rather than sort of negotiating individual packages <laughs> uh, on each project that you know there might be scope for um, negotiating bigger packages if you had had that sort of insight on all your projects way ahead of the, you know, the scheduler when you need it is that, is that the kind of thing that it's looking at as well Absolutely
2: yeah so from a from a project data perspective advanced work packaging provides a great level of insight through the project life cycle and it's really by taking something large which is your your entire project and breaking it down into smaller chunks and that that really is the core concept of advanced work packaging it's breaking things down into smaller chunks and making sure those chunks are aligned to support a desired end state. And once that's achieved, it gives the entire project team visibility into what's happening, where performance is on plan, where it's off plan, and where we're seeing off plan performance. So, you know, things are behind or we're doing things out of sequence, we have an opportunity to course correct. And we can do that before the cascading implications are really experienced by downstream stakeholders. So advanced work packaging provides that level of visibility, but we really need to combine that with a level of, of analytics and, you know, mm-hmm. taking, taking the data that's being produced through the project and providing ways to visualize that data and, and really empower those individuals in decision making roles to see what's happening and make those course corrections as those, um, as those circumstances are being encountered. Because as we all know, sometimes you know, reporting on projects can um, can be delayed. You know, by the time you do schedule updates, everybody sits down around the table and looks at a performance report. Sometimes the data is two or three weeks old. Well, at that point, it's antiquated, and, and you're an entire in an entirely different position now. But you're making decisions based on three-week-old data, so those might not be the right decisions. Yeah. So that that's also a challenge. And I think industry-wide organizations are trying to resolve that in figuring out how to more effectively. Engage with their information and make uh, better decisions in nearer real time as as possible.
0: That's really interesting. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about the sort of image of the industry because uh, I mean it's it's always great to to have a woman on our show because you know, just there's just not a lot of uh, women in, in 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 the industry. We know that, and there the needs to be more. And you know, the the sector has a perception of being. Male orientated, dirty, corrupt, and all those things. A lot of that is perception rather than reality. I, th- I think it's a fascinating industry. Personally, I think it's the industry's literally building the world, so it's, it's doing excellent work. But as a woman, I mean, could you speak to the audience and even in, in some words of encouragement to, to people who might feel, you know, the construction industry is not for them for reasons of, of, they don't fit the image of the perception? When I was in
2: high school, I was really dissuaded by individuals that I, I looked at as mentors and, you know, told to pursue a career other than something in construction because it was, it was just a guy's world. And I, I was stubborn, thankfully, and I, I really enjoyed the construction space. And so I, I persisted and I would not trade industries for the world right now. I love what I do um uh, but i think there's a lot of misunderstanding around what opportunities are available in in our industry for for women in construction and unfortunately there is uh, a very small percentage of women that uh, that are you know comprising our professional workforce there is countless opportunities in our space and one of my focus areas in the industry is really encouraging women to pursue careers in construction there is like I said, a a lot of misconception around this being a guy's world. It's not, you know, sometimes uh, challenges in, you know, being a woman in the space, sometimes people will give you a bit of a hard time and uh, that, that can be a little bit frustrating. But what I would recommend to women who are considering careers in the space is reach out to other women who are in this space. Connect with people. There's there's a lot of women out there that are interested in, in mentoring the next generation of women in construction and really ensuring that they have the awareness of the opportunities in our industry space and can help create connections or Provide information that will help women really, you know, navigate the uh, the career landscape and select something that's that they're really going to be passionate about and interested in.
0: Because it's such a, a, I mean, the industry is so diverse in the things that it it does. I mean, I, you know, those when most people think about construction, they probably think about a you know, bricklayer or plumber or something. But there's yeah. so much to the industry. It's so diverse, and I think the industry needs to change the image, really, because obviously a diverse group of people could contribute to the industry who probably aren't contributing because they feel they don't fit the image or the traditional image or the perception. So you're absolutely right. Um, so, John, do you just want to s- any last parting words? Or? Uh,
1: no, sorry, Tanis. Uh, just like to thank you for your time. It was really insightful. I've learned a lot around advanced work packaging, and didn't know the concept existed before today, so thank you, and thanks for your time.
0: Any parting words, Tennis?
2: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure to chat with you, Ralph, and you, John, today about digitization, uh, the state of the construction industry, and opportunities in technology and construction. It's uh, It's a topic I'm obviously quite passionate about. I know you guys are as well. And uh, certainly appreciate all the great work you guys are doing on the podcast and sharing the uh, the messages within the industry and really helping people build more effectively uh, through sharing collective knowledge.
0: And from my side, just thank you. You know, it's always been a good talk when the time just flies by. It's just really fascinating stuff. We appreciate it. Let's, let's keep in touch. We've created a new platform where people can share posts and things. So if you have anything you feel would be useful to share with the community, uh, please post it on the A hive platform and uh, thanks Tanis and all the best
2: absolutely thanks guys